Thank you. I had no idea I would be greeted by such special old friends that I didn't even realize I would be seeing here. So this is perfect. Some uh, Larry, who's here at one of your myths, and again, Heather was one of our fellows, a great project she did there. Um, so uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, but I'd also like to make this interactive. A uh, couple places we'll be stopping in Q&A, but uh, please uh, feel free to interrupt me. Um, I really don't have any commercial conflicts. I, the Bat Gordon Betty Moore Foundation has now been funding some work in diagnostic air as well as our malpractice insurers. They've been pretty enlightened and some other work, as, as I mentioned, in medical humanism we can talk to. So we're going to talk a little bit actually about a case and then some of these recent reports that have come up, maybe hear about some of your experience with grand rounds and then try to cover some key concepts and approaches to uh, uh, how we might uh, tackle this sort of really big problem. Uh, I'm going to start with a, 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 pa a patient or a case that uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with Rory Staunton. Have people heard of that case? This turned out to be the number one downloaded article in the New York Times in, in 2012, I think. And it's a 12-year-old little boy who is actually a pilot. And, and many ironies, as you'll hear, he actually met Sullenberger. How many people saw that movie, Sully? Did people see that movie? So, who is sort of a patient safety hero, but little did he know that he would actually be the victim of a, of a really uh, misdiagnosis and a fatal misdiagnosis. And uh, you know, he was how a simple cut in a gym class led to fatal sepsis infection, and he lost his life. Eleven years old, I guess. At the, Get the stage wrong. Um, sent home, and you know, I'm, again, without going through all the details, but you know, he, he was diving for a basketball and he cut his arm, and then he developed fever and vomiting and leg pain. Um, went to NYU Medical Center. He was given fluids. They they diagnosed as just sort of a gastroenteritis. Um, told to take Tylenol, even though at discharge his vital signs pulse at 132, respiratory rate of 22. Um, and he had a lab that didn't return until after he was discharged, that he had a very high white count, I think it was 18,000 with a left shift. That was never noted. His parents called twice back to the pediatrician. They were worried about him. Ultimately, they told him to bring him back to the emergency room. And at that point, he was in septic shock and uh, ICU ventilator died two days later. And so this is sort of an illustration of sort of failure to illustrate. This, this family has actually gone on to be a sort of a big advocates for the Stop Sepsis campaign. It's sort of controversial about what, what exactly we can do to sort of recognize this. Obviously, in some ways, all of pediatrics is deciding which kid with a fever has meningitis and which one has just got, you know, the routine flu, and that's pivoted in this case. Um, it turns out, though, I, when we started out doing diagnostic error, it was really low on the list of patient safety uh, issues and concerns. Well, AHRQ funded 93 projects in the early 2000s on patient safety, and there was only one on diagnostic error, and that was us. There was a little group of us. Uh, I have these academic titles you heard, but I was just basically a you know, primary care doc. I, I directed our clinic at Cook County Hospital, but we just felt it was worth trying, and we realized after getting this one project funded why we were the only ones foolish enough to wade out into this swamp. Because, you know, unlike a medication area, you know, at 11 a.m., Mary Jones got penicillin, to which she was allergic, and we could figure out, you know, why the allergy list didn't trigger an alert. I mean, here, we just couldn't even agree what the real diagnosis was and 
whether something could have been diagnosed earlier. And it was really, and in fact, we had on our team of people every Friday we met and talked about a case of a diagnostic error. And we couldn't even agree what the actual diagnosis was on these patients. And the only two people that had sort of some clear vision were the two non-MDs on our team. We had a psychologist and a communications expert. So, but this has now gone from being this sort of outside stepchild to, in 2008, this is just a few weeks ago, this is the ECRI Institute, it's a quality institute, it's in based in uh, Pennsylvania, that this is the number one uh, uh, patient safety concern. They, they surveyed all the safety people that work with them. Again, you can see the, the list that we topped here, you know, opioid safety and care coordination, workarounds, health IT, we were just talking about that, and we're gonna have more to say about that. Um, etc. So, um, so I guess uh, let me give you a little of the data why we've found or we say this is important. This is in Massachusetts. They asked all the Massachusetts residents. Now, there's there's going to be a bias here because I'm I'm an internist, and so these won't be primarily uh, peds uh, examples. But I think this I think is still the uh, um, general situation in your specialty as well. Um, percent of people who've had a preventable medical error in Massachusetts, this was a very big survey done by the Betsy Lehman Center, who we're now working with actually to talk about diagnostic error cases. And um, a, a basically a quarter of the people said yes, but here's the interesting thing, again, this is before it was number one on their list, what, what, what kind of error was it? And as you can see here, which the mouse here, here went, um, you know, you can see that that number one here was diagnosis, more than wrong test or surgery or medication, et cetera. We all know there's plenty of problems with medication and um, tests, you know, not being done properly. So, uh, so, so this is, you know, half of these, these uh, one-fourth people, so really saying one in eight in Massachusetts had a diagnostic error for them or, or someone close to them. And then we went into all the malpractice claims. We got the two big malpractice insurers I guess you have a lot of insurers here in Hartford of various sorts, and I'm sure they don't all sit together and share their, their information. But we got the two big malpractice insurers to uh, let us look into their cases, and we found, and we were interested in primary care, so there's roughly 100 cases a year, if you just look down to the bottom here, 100 cases a year of, of uh, malpractice claims in primary care you know, over a five-year period, 500. But if you look, diagnosis, 400 out of 500. Medication errors, it's like six or seven to one, more than the next uh, leading one. And then a lot of these errors, again, in, in adults are, are cancer. So uh, if you look, 190 of those cases are cancer. Um, you know, and then there's heart disease and infection. I think those are some of the big three. But colorectal, lung, prostate, breast, um, every year, these continue to be the uh, leading uh, causes of misdiagnosis and diagnosis, in, again, in the malpractice data. And then we went in and tried to understand, you know, where, where's the lesion? You know, where are things going wrong? Again, we're not going to go through these, especially because they're more adult-type cases, but like in colorectal, a lot of it has to do with the evaluation of symptoms. We just looked at um, several, 300 patients with rectal bleeding at our hospital. So Heather was there. We thought she was going to solve all the quality problems working with our group, but it turns out in, in the Harvard group that was working on this, you know, probably half of these patients with rectal bleeding didn't have the appropriate workup or follow-up, you know, and then breast cancer, there's history and physical and exaggerating symptoms with things like lung cancer, prostate cancer, a certain amount of that is 
failure to follow up, abnormal tests, lung nodules, or PSAs, so garden variety things that we th would think we would have uh, reliable systems to prevent these kind of errors. And then this is the most uh, interesting or dis disturbing thing that we found. So we looked at all the non-general uh, medicine, non-diagnosis cases, and the diagnosis cases, and what this shows you is, you know, typically, you know, people talk about malpractice and the burden, but, you know, very rarely 1% the plaintiff wins, and then, you know, you have to settle in about 20%. Most of it are either dismissed or dropped. But look at these diagnosis cases. 40% of these are, dis are, are, are have to be settled. 2%, of course, that's just double of 1%. But the point is, the, the lawyers who are trying to defend these cases open these charts and they say, oops, we've screwed up, we can't defend this case, uh, whether it's an obvious lung nodule or PSA, as I said. So these are ones that I, we, we think are sort of more frequently, there's preventable things that we could have done better. So at this point, I, and I'm supposed to not leave the podium here, but I wonder whether people have personal examples. And I started doing this, I was giving a talk for the Joint Commission Ambulatory Group a couple of years ago, and I, they gave me an hour and a half, and so we don't really have time to do this the way I would like, but I, you know, I just threw it out to the audience, and people started sharing personal examples. It could either be cases you've seen or things with your family, and when I walked away, three or four people got up, four or five people, every one was within the last two weeks, just by coincidence. So I wonder whether people, I, I don't see, a, I guess, a microphone in the audience, but anybody want to share a case you've seen or been involved in or... Um, or, or you know, anonymously want to uh, mention? Any, any recent uh, Pete's cases here, or M&M's? Uh, we don't make mistakes here. You don't make mistakes. <laughs> 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 well, I'll tell you about, I guess I can't do the right, I'm supposed to do this. There's a, there's a, I, I did this at a grand rounds. In fact, I think I have some slides of the the 600 cases we collected, and I said, if you could just take a few minutes, write down three cases, and it takes a minute for people to start reflecting, but there was one doctor, this is in Iowa, who sat there like this. I said, do you not have a pen, doctor, so-and-so? <laughs> no, no, um, well, anything, your colleagues, never seen a test result, not thought, no, never seen it, you know, older doctor, many years in practice. So I, you know, so this is sort of an error-free doctor, and I said to myself, I don't think I would want to be that doctor's patient. He's never seen an error, never learned from an error. So uh, hopefully collectively you all are not doing this. Um, so t t tell me about anything that you might have seen. There's just your family member. Um, anybody here share anything? Okay, there's one of the two in the back row. So again, oh, there is a mic. So thank you for, uh, for volunteering. But by the way, the two people volunteered, since you're brave, I, I have a couple of extra music CDs I share with uh, <laughs> patients and friends and family. So if you come up afterwards, you've just won a, a door prize of it. <laughs> but, but, but on a serious note, I mean, many people share very painful stories. So uh, what, whatever you're about to tell us, so thank you for that. This isn't that painful, but um, <laughs> I'm Jessica, I'm one of the residents, and we just had a patient, just an example of diagnostic error. This patient came in primarily complaining of abdominal pain and fever, and it was primarily right lower quadrant. So everyone really focused on pilo um, versus api, and it ended up being a pneumonia. They also had a cough, and we just kind of glossed over that. So it was, um, I think the patient was admitted. It was they were admitted overnight, but you know they went to the emergency room at 19, and then um, we got a chest X-ray in the morning. How how old was this patient? Um, 
Six. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I, I know this isn't an X-rated lecture, and I'm supposed to stay behind the podium. And actually, what, what age does pediatrics go up to? Is it 18, or what's, what's the traditional cutoff? It depends on their, their life. All right. Well, I, I, was, I, I, I was a sophomore in college, and I'll show you my appendicitis. Can everybody see that? And, and they end up getting a wound infection. So uh, I was a sophomore at Tufts, actually, where you went. I was an undergraduate. And uh, I developed uh, abdominal pain and diarrhea. And, uh, they said I had appendicitis, even though I, I remember questioning it, uh, going to the hospital with the doctor. He says, I've never, I've never been wrong. Every appendicitis I've operated has been correct, which actually, in retrospect, tells me that he's really uh, is, is, was wrong in even saying that, because there should be a certain rate of negative appendectomy. Well, it turned out I had salmonella food poisoning. So that scar is from salmonella. So you didn't actually go in and intervene on that patient, right? You watched them and and ultimately, how was the correct diagnosis established? Do you remember any more details? The day team um, noted that they were having coffins um, uh, listed and got a chest x-ray in the morning. Yeah, so, so this is, you know, there's sort of this fresh eyes phenomenon, right? So there was a handoff, and in the new group who is, I'm, hope, I'm hopefully getting the story right or filling in what I would imagine, and they sort of retook a history or, or critically rethought the information, and they were able to kind of re, uh, revise the diagnosis. Believe it or not, that's the exception rather than the rule. So you get somebody admitted the, from the emergency room with appendicitis, and you just take the hand off, and then there's sort of a, a, you know, a continuation on, on that diagnosis, right? So people call it premature closure, right, or, or anchoring on that original diagnosis. And it's happening every last night at Brigham, I guarantee you, somebody was admitted with pneumonia that maybe have congestive heart failure. But here's a, you know, 82-year-old patient with pneumonia, and you just take the hand off and you get to work treating with antibiotics. So that's, that's an interesting case and a good illustration. Um, we're actually doing better with appendicitis <coughs> since we're doing imaging. It's interesting. A lot of these imaging things probably haven't changed the misdiagnosis right, but that's probably one we've published a series we actually looked at. So I was skeptical that this, you know, the false negatives were still, you know, still going to be similar, but there's, there's been improvement in that area. Some people think that's the way we're going to improve diagnosis is get fancier tests, right? Better tests, do more tests. Um, I have a whole lecture and we just, we have to try to get this paper published, but I, I think that's kind of the wrong way to think about it. And many of these diagnoses errors you saw would not uh, lend themselves to that um, technology. Uh, I heard one more, I saw one more hand, or two more hands. Yeah, almost similar to the NYU case, a 17-year-old female presented in my office about seven years ago with abuse myalgias. She was weak, tired, you know, her heart rate was about 150, her blood pressure was about 105, I recall, over 60. She was hypotensive, uh, sent her into a a local community hospital. They decided that she just needed hydration and they hydrated her up. Similar to the other case, they got a white count with around 40% bands. Some of them did it possibly after, after she was sent home. The following morning, the only way she was able to contact her mother was by cell phone in the adjoining room because she was so weak. We sent her in by ambulance here. There are two children's 
she was admitted to the PICU with uh, toxic shock and safe. And there was just a clear look at how it's so easy to overlook the vital signs um, that, you know, we're so into the history, we often forget about the most basics. I think that what that happened at the local community hospital. Yeah. So, so it's sort of a deja vu of the same case. Clear process errors, you're saying things were overlooked. Um, uh, you know, and sort of the way these things are sort of dealt with is sort of in the malpractice court of law, right? So do, do they sue, do these people sue, or should they have sued, or should they have won, or what would you say if you were the doctor? How, any thoughts on that whole realm? I see. So, oh, so, so he recovered. I, I, I didn't. You didn't tell me the outcome. Yeah. 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 A near miss. Well, it's 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 a lot to talk about, but it's it sounds like one of the things that was a good outcome was that the hospital. Um, appropriately responded, right? It sounds like they were... Right, so they probably apologized, disclosed, maybe they put in some new measures in place to try to deal with some of the things that went wrong. Um, you know, this is sort of part of a culture of safety, but traditionally the, the answer is we circle the wagons and don't talk to them, we're going to just provoke a suit. You know, if you find three more things that you did wrong in the case, definitely hide those for sure. Um, so that's good. And then one more hand. Uh, yeah, two more hands. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll, a couple more. We'll. Uh, it was at my phone where I was told that a kid, a four-year-old, that has some retraction, a little breathing difficulty, and a little fever. And I spoke to the, uh, the nurse who told me about the kid, and I said, well, just wait, we'll give him a breathing treatment in the meantime. Uh, but it turns out uh, uh, during that delay, she recognized that the kid had a somewhat higher fever and sent her the kid to the emergency room, the four-year-old, and I said, why the did you do that? And she said, well, the kid turned out with epiglottitis. This is a long time ago. And uh, then it was a good outcome because uh, she had the wisdom, and she being actually the wife of a prominent pediatrician here in the audience, uh, she had the wisdom just to send him without to say so because she could see the clinical difficulty, whereas at a distance it was not so easy. And, and I, I was having trouble hearing some of them. So, so, so who was the assertive person? Was it the parent or the other p p physician? There was a nurse on the scene who I called the kid and didn't run away from asthma treatment because she could put the pieces together and therefore saved the, you know, you know saved the uh, possibility yeah. of yeah. by not waiting and not um, Yeah. Well, what, what, so what, one little thing that I'm distilling so I spent the weekend in Chicago. There's a group of patients who've suffered serious medical errors related to diagnosis. This is a first for me, this group. They've been coming to this conference This you heard what we founded. We have about 300 people every year. It's actually going to be in New Orleans this year in the fall. Um, anybody's interested. Uh, but patients are starting to come to this conference, and um, patients are becoming advocates. And every story was, you know, the doctors and the nurses weren't appreciated. I kept saying, my baby is sick. And you know, and they say no, he looks okay. 
Um, you know, we're giving them hydration, we're you know, gonna send them home, we can watch, call back. And these parents, these advocates say, no, you're not listening to me. He doesn't, this, he doesn't look this way normally. And they were saying, no, he's, you know, he'll get better, it's the flu season or whatever the uh, differential is. So, so this question about somebody stepping out of their role and advocating is so important, whether it's a nurse in the hierarchy, okay? Um, but, and so that's another part of culture safety. Instead of just saying, I'm the doctor, you're just a dumb nurse. I told you there's nothing wrong with this kid. You know, those are all loaded words I'm using, stereotypes. Um, instead of that, um, if you're worried, if you parent are worried, if you nurse are worried, then we, we gotta you know, rethink this diagnosis and at least uh, escalate, you know. So what, what I've done when we tried to put this together, and the Institute of Medicine came up with a very uh, beautiful, elaborate model, and, but this is a very simple-minded one for a simple-minded person, I guess. It's just three Venn diagrams here, and, um, and uh, it really talks about the diagnostic process errors on one hand, and then misdelayed diagnosis and adverse outcomes, and they don't all overlap entirely, okay? So th think about how many times somebody has a left shift on their, their CBC, and it's just no big deal, right? There's a somebody doesn't look into it, you don't have a misdiagnosis, there's no delay, and certainly there's no harm, nobody dies, okay? So that would all fall into here. Um, you know, somebody has a sodium that's 140 today and then it's 122 tomorrow. And, you know, maybe they drew it from the wrong patient, you know, or they, you know, it was incorrectly uh, processed or switched specimens. So, but then there's like Linda McDougall, and this is, I'm not violating her confidentiality, she's on the cover of Newsweek. And she woke up after her breast surgery. She had bilateral mastectomy for breast cancer, and the surgeon said, you don't have breast cancer. And she said, I'm so glad, doctor, you got it all out. He says, no, actually, you never had breast cancer. We switched, switched your pathology with another patient, your specimen. And so, um, and so she obviously had a diagnostic process failure that it's not just the sodium being switched, it was the pathology slide a missed and delayed diagnosis, and that led to an adverse outcome. One of the patients, her name was Susan Sheridan at this conference this weekend, her husband had some kind of neck tumor, and it was on a pathology slide again. It was abnormal and it was never followed up on. The, the, the um, frozen section was read as sort of benign, and then the later specimen, the revised, never caught up with her, and this, her husband actually died. So I think if you begin to put these cases that we heard into this framework, um, certainly there's just diagnostic process errors happening all the time, I mean, somebody not getting a full history on a patient, missing that they traveled, but usually, you know, it just doesn't lead to harm. Obviously the zone that we're most concerned about is this, this little one in the middle here where the three circles overlap, um, as it did in a number of the cases we heard about. Others are sort of near misses. Um, so this is a pediatrician, so I couldn't help but cite him. Um, how many people know who Don Berwick is? Hopefully people, he's, he's sort of the reason I moved from Chicago to Boston, the, the work, and that's really the reason Heather was probably there. He's, you know, there's a whole patient safety uh, community, but he's just really one of the, the leaders, the inspiring people. Um, and there's a quote from him, this is from a very major medical journal called the Boston Globe. Um, but it caught my eye, I said, I said in the early 2000s, this is when we were beginning to think about diagnostic, and this is one of the 
quotes that changed my life, really. It says, genius diagnosticians make great stories, right? So these are brilliant doctors in Boston. Great stories, but they don't make great healthcare. The idea is to make accuracy reliable, not heroic. So you shouldn't have to go to great doctor so-and-so to get the right diagnosis. There should be, should be sort of woven into the fabric of the way we work together and the way people learn together, learn from mistakes. And so really, that's one quote. And then this, you know, fast forward, as I said, diagnostic errors are really getting the, uh, the respect that they deserve. So in 2015, the Institute of Medicine, this is after many years really of us lobbying to put a focus on this area, came up with this report. Um, each of these goals, they came up with seven sort of findings or recommendations, and we're going to just spend a few minutes on uh, um, a few of these. But, you know, number one, more teamwork among the families, among the, the practitioners. We, I alluded to some one reason or way that could happen with people speaking up and working together, the pathologists working more closely with the, the primary care team. People should be educated about the diagnostic process, learning about this whole problem of anchoring and premature closure and availability bias. We're not gonna talk about that, but hopefully your residents are educated and will be more so. Um, make sure that HIT works for the diagnostic process rather than against it. I mean, if you have notes that are uh, you know, uh, 20 pages long and you can't find the information or it's all copied and pasted and misinformation, how to do that. Um, how do we learn from errors? So, uh, you know, the word, as I was saying, the most positive thing that I heard about that one case is what we did afterwards to learn from this. Um, uh, this next goal of having a culture that supports this, again, I, I alluded to that, and we can talk about that. We're going to have, I guess, a little session afterwards. I have some slides. We just published an editorial on what is a culture of diagnostic safety, but it really is just one where people are free to admit their mistakes and share them and learn from them. Um, people should be able to report without getting sued and we need malpractice reform related to that. Payment system supports the diagnostic process. You know, on one hand, that means we need enough time to see our patients. Um, in, in this report, I actually, they kind of drank the Kool-Aid about managed care and, you know, uh, anti-fee-for-service being the answer. I'm not sure I agree with everything they said, but this one, I certainly do more, more money for research, so we spend all of our time chasing after very few dollars, very little funding for this work. So I mentioned one of the things I did was go around and uh, I guess we would have had 400, 584 reports if the physician hadn't been sitting there like that. But we, we, we collected a bunch of diagnostic error cases. I guess this is still the largest case series. And we applied another hero of mine, his name's Lucian Leap, who said safer practice can come about from acknowledging the potential for error and building in error reduction strategies in each stage of clinical practice. So this report called To Air is Human, Don Berwick and Lucian Leap helped write. And the idea is not you're a bad doctor if you err, but you're just human if you err. It's just normal. People make all sorts of mistakes if we begin to think about our own lives of forgetting your keys or um, I forgot my batteries for this clicker this morning. Um, it's just human that this happens. Um, so what we need to do is just sort of break down the diagnostic process and see what went wrong in each case. And that early project, we, since we couldn't figure out what was causing these errors, we, we decided we should at least figure out where they're happening in this diagnostic process. So this is sort of the anatomy, uh, if you want to think about. Uh, and so we broke down history and physical tests, assessment stage, again, hypothesis generation, too much weight or too little weight, and 
and actually just not recognizing um, the urgency or the complications. So, you know, it's okay if you don't, I didn't know that Rory Staunton, what the organism he had in his bloodstream was, you know, was it gonna be staph or strep or, you know, pseudomonas, but just recognizing that, that this is a sick kid that needs to be in the hospital, but uh, often um, that's part of what's gone wrong. So we looked at these cases and we tried to classify in each case, many cases there were more than one thing, failure and delay that nobody considered the diagnosis or ordering a special or needed test. So those go hand in hand. Obviously if you don't suspect somebody has meningitis and you're not gonna do an LP, so you know there could be two things that went wrong if a meningitis patient had died, the radiologist read the test wrong, there was a lesion there in retrospect somebody saw, et cetera. Um, but even this idea, people talk about cognitive versus system causes in diagnostic error, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of these separating them. So, so if somebody uh, you know, doesn't know about something, is that, is that a not, lack of knowledge or don't remember it? Is that a system problem or a cognitive problem? Okay, um, uh, just general knowledge. Uh, so in fact, you don't have adequate time. If I have to see people in eight minutes, I, I'm just gonna make mistakes. I'm gonna make cognitive errors. Or how about I get interrupted, I'm in the emergency room, and there's a cardiac arrest to the next bed, and then you come back to that first patient. Say, where, where were we? What were we asking? What were we talking about? Uh, failure to elicit history of symptoms. So an atypical presentation, uh, you know, or red herring, so that kid who's you know, skimmed his knee, but also was having GI illness, was going around, maybe his brother and sister were having, uh, you know, gastroenteritis, so things, so really asking ourselves what are the causes and what are the remedies to, to each of these things that I think really are in many ways rooted in system, they're at least inseparable, this cognitive versus system. So the way that I want to think about it as we wind up and talk about uh, some of the solutions is something I call situation, people call situational awareness and safety nets. So what do we mean by situational awareness? It's a specialized type, they talk about this in industry, you know, uh, high, high, high reliability theory, nuclear submarines and very things that have to have very low risk. Um, but it's appreciating what would go wrong. People are walking around worrying about things, making failures visible, looking for red flags. So this is a quote, Perhaps the most important distinguishing feature of high reliability organizations is their collective preoccupation with the possibility of failure. So they're always worried about things that go wrong. They expect to make errors. Not that you're a bad doctor if you make errors. You expect to make errors and train your workforce to recognize and recover them. They continually rehearse familiar scenarios of failure and strive hard to imagine novel ones. Instead of isolating failures, they generalize them. Instead of making local repairs, they look for system reforms. So each of those, there's a lot of baggage that's really uh, wisdom that I would really. Um, so here's Sullenberger. This was Rory Staunton's hero, okay, who unfortunately died. So this was this uh, U.S. Airlines plane that, that you know crashed that had to have an emergency landing in the Hudson River, and it turns out it was the first water landing of a commercial air jet in, in U.S. history, and every single passenger was saved. You know, it was just within seconds or minutes this thing sunk and they got everybody out safely. It turns out that morning um, that before they took off, they rehearsed what to do with a water landing. Now here they'd never had a water landing, emergency water landing of an airplane. And uh, the movie actually focuses on a sort of a different controversy of whether he could have made it to the airport or not. And um, 
and I won't even tell you how the plot played out. I mean, I figured when I watched this movie, I already know what happened, but it was, it's an interesting kind of thriller. Actually, people in the patient safety community have some criticism because it makes him be the hero. But, but, but he was a hero because he was concerned about patient safety. But on the other hand, um, uh, this was really a team effort, and they had already rehearsed what to do that morning. So talk about situational awareness, being prepared, anticipating things that go wrong, even rare things. And then I, I've sort of tried to put some of this in a sort of a new word, which turns out as we go back in the literature, you know, even in the 1900s, people were talking about this, but diagnostic pitfalls, clinical situations or patterns of vulnerabilities where things can go wrong. And we've gone through, we went through all those malpractice cases yet again. We went back to the malpractice insurers and we're, again, we've been looking in the primary care one. And, and you can see we did literature searches and malpractice claims. We went through all the morbidity and mortality conferences. And then we actually, the most productive thing was we went to specialists, including um, Heather's colleague in rheumatology, Sonali Desai, and we sat people down and they said, what are the pitfalls? What are, the, what, are, what are us primary care doctors doing that you're seeing in the patients that are referred to you? And again, we're not gonna go through all the details. We, we collected cases, colorectal cancer, you can see is high on the list. A lot of oncology, um, some rheumatology down near the bottom. Partly this is just a bias in terms of the numbers of doctors we interviewed in these focus groups. But, um, and again, a lot of this is failure to order needed tests or consider the right diagnosis. Um, so we came up with these generic types of pitfalls, so disease A mistaken for disease B. So how often does pneumonia and appendicitis get mixed up? You know, that might be an example. Um, so, or bipolar mistaken for depression, oh my God. I was in clinic yesterday and I had a very uh, bipolar patient and the entire visit was consumed. You have to take bipolar off my problem list. She's like, she was flying from the city. She even interrupted me. I was in the previous patient. She bangs in the door because they are now getting a printout that they can correct. Take this off my problem list. And she also had chest pain on her problem list. And she'd been in urgent care three times in the last month for chest. Take chest pain off my problem list. So, anyway, I've just seen this. I mean, uh, amnestic response here. Fit, fit, fit. I, haven't, I haven't finished my notes on most patients, yeah. Um, failure to appreciate test limitations, okay? So I, I get a, um, an example is a woman comes with a breast lump and we get a mammogram and it's normal and I say, okay, nothing to worry about. Well, that turns out that's not right. We now know that. You have to go on and do an ultrasound, okay? For screening, we use mammograms, but for a diagnostic test, it's not 100%. So we need to know the limitations of the test. Atypical presentation, again, that's another type of pitfall. Um, you know, how often does pneumonia present with left lower quadrant, right lower quadrant pain, okay? So that might be an atypical way it presents. Um, presuming a chronic disease accounts for new symptoms. Uh, for, um, uh, so, you know, somebody has some chronic problem, that maybe they have knee pain chronically, and you're saying that's their rheumatoid arthritis of their knee, or JRA, when they actually have an infection, <clears throat> overlooking drug or other environmental causes. Um, failure to monitor evolving symptoms. So maybe sending Rory Stone from the ER home, he didn't look that sick, although it sounds like he did. Uh, wasn't the worst thing, but how about a call within four hours? And if he's worse, bringing him back and lowering the threshold. One of the things I said in one of the uh, talks I gave a while ago, it ended up being on the headline of the paper that they report on. I give my cell phone to all my patients, 
and they, they, they almost never bother me. There's a few, that, that one who I mentioned in the clinic actually does, yes. Um, but, you know, but it's really peace of mind for them and signaling to them that look, I, I'm, I want to have a low threshold. If you're worse, especially you want to give people clear instructions, but you want to monitor people closely and follow up. Um, and so th this situational awareness um, uh, uh, concept, I think, is summarized in this, this three flags here that I'm just grasping, and you probably maybe can have to help me, maybe Heather and others. So there, on one hand, you have these don't miss diagnoses, right? You don't want to miss meningitis. You don't want to miss uh, spinal epidural abscess in an adult or um, other really serious diseases, septics. Um, there's red flag symptoms, right? So when somebody has, or signs, somebody has a white count of 22,000 or, or 132 pulse rate, right? That's a red flag that something's going on. And then there's these diagnostic pitfalls, these patterns that we can learn over and over of, of traps. And so how to put all this together to create this awareness and, and anticipate these. And then creating safety nets. And, and you know, so how can we pre create ways of, again, hardwiring this feedback, um, recognizing the risks, and again, how can we use HIT to help us? So we're trying to, everybody is at hospital, I'm sure, is trying to use results management you know, the ways we don't have to remember the follow-up results on post-its or manually. Uh, right now, I think there's still a lot to be done. But we've tried to look into what health information technologies can help us rather than hurt us. And I would say right now, it's, it's more in the hurting us, distracting, things getting lost. But things such as tools that can assist in information gathering. So patients can put histories online before the visit. So you have this in front of you. Cognition facilitated by enhanced organization and display of the information. So I mean the simple thing was just a flow sheet, flow sheet where the abnormals are in red. Or just something where the, the this concerns don't get buried in, in the way that the information is organized. Um, you know, you have these big medical records. We had a case from Brigham. Somebody had a splenectomy. Okay, that was uh, Tejal Gandhi's patient that she wrote up in New England Journal. Somebody had a splenectomy and they end up dying of pneumococcal sepsis. They never got a pneumococcal vaccine. They came in sick. It wasn't recognized. You know, that was, wasn't in the problem list. It just got buried. There was no way of reminding somebody that they, that person was at risk. Eighth, the generation of differential diagnosis. Now, how many people know about Isabel? Do you know what Isabel is? Because this is pediatrics in its origin. So Isabel is, um, was the daughter of um, the, the founder of this it's a differential diagnosis program. And if you go online, and actually a lot of the hospitals have bought this program, and I'm still not sure whether, how I think we can best use this, but it's, it's pretty interesting and cool, and actually they've incorporated this sort of uh, don't miss diagnosis, that was one of my suggestions for it. But uh, anyway, how about a list? If somebody's got some funny syndrome, let's see a list of what are the possibilities, and at least say, oh, something to prompt me. So that failure to consider, remember I just showed you that was a, a leading cause. Calculators for weighing it. So how many people can do Bayes' theorem calculations in their head uh, or even do it well? I mean, so, so we don't do very well. Somebody's got a, you know, test has a 90% sensitivity, so they have a negative test. So what's the likelihood they still have this disease? Um, so support for diagnostic test selection. So I want to work up somebody for hemochromatosis and what's the right test sequence or, or you know, they have a low 
MCV, for thalassemia, what's the right test to order? I, I can get help from the computer, ideally. Um, access to diagnostic information, so probably the main diagnostic resources, you know, up to date. So if somebody's coming in with hematuria, I can go, the residents look through it and see what the differential diagnosis is, things to consider. Um, facilitate reliable follow-up, so to make sure somebody, I, so we refer people for um, colonoscopy at Brigham, okay? So if people want to guess, when I order a colonoscopy at my hospital, what are the chances somebody has it? Let's hear some numbers. 20%. 20%? An 80% failure rate? No, no, how many people go to take the test? Yeah, actually, I order the test. I've just talked to the person. That I say, you need it? They say, yes, I'll go. I hit the button, and you're saying 80% of them don't get the test. Am I not hitting the button hard enough? What's, what's the problem? <laughs> what, what, any other guesses? 50. 50. Who said that? Okay, you could get a CD too. That's the right answer. Okay, but it's a shocking right answer. I guess five. Huh? <laughs> no, 50% is the right so, so, I mean, what do you do? I mean, you can imagine if 50% of the cars that came off the assembly line had a defect in it, right? I mean, it's a 50% failure rate in me ordering colonoscopies. And, you know, again, you guys don't take care of adults, but probably some of you actually have gone for colonoscopies yourself and parents. You know, between the prep and the scheduling and the getting a ride there. Um, so there's all these balls dropping, okay? And so, but we need some tools to make sure that people are reliably followed up, you know, especially if they have rectal bleeding, especially if they have a family history of colon cancer. This just happened to one of my patients. So balls drop. So we need ways of just ensuring, or even just reminding me that the patient needed tools to alert about screening. That's the, we're down here. Um, facilitate diagnostic collaboration. So I see a weird rash, I should be able to push a button and a dermatologist could come on the screen and tell me what to worry about. Now, right now, the current thing is, no, no, send the patient to me, no malpractice liability, this is a curbside you know, video consult, but we need to kind of change that um, to figure out how to get that kind of collaboration in real time. And then systems that actually give us feedback and we can learn from. Um, clinical documentation, we sort of thought of that as that's sort of the paperwork you do after the job is done, right? But, you know, and, and you were doing this for the malpractice insurers, but we want to, I want to change this. We want to think about it. It's a canvas for your assessment. That's what the CYA should stand for, you know. Um, so we're really thinking out loud. So the next person come along and say, you know, you, you dummy, Gordy, you didn't even think that this could be endocarditis, you know, but at least it's clear to me and actually the patients. The patients are reading these notes and they should be able to read them and, and see we should have our differential diagnosis so it's not just one thing, but what we're considering and how to weigh the this, what's the etiology and the urgency, as I said. How certain are you? You know, I, I think this person has appendicitis, but it's really, it's not a typical case. I'm not so sure. We're gonna get some consults or I'm gonna just think about it or watch the person. So if we could get this and use this as a way of sort of thinking out loud and sharing this. Of course, if this is buried at the bottom of a big note, you can't even find it. Um, at least it's legible nowadays or, you know, hopefully. But still, we have a ways to go to have the EMR use this. So I think I'm going to stop. Well, here's one more thing. So this is Isabel. I mentioned that. So this is integrated into Cerner. I think you have Epic here. Is that what I learned or no? But Cerner is a very big um, system in a lot of children's hospitals. Our children's hospital has Cerner. And as I'm typing the note, it says, patient, here's a, um, 
Patient 20 year old, so it's almost pediatric, female with target shaped rash, eschar, and nausea. Over here on the right, there's a differential diagnosis being generated automatically. And, uh, you know, are any of these right? Or, you know, is this appendicitis or is this Lyme disease? But at least it could sort of help you think about the list. And there's that red flag that uh, I guess I'm responsible for it. Like they said they put it for the don't miss ones. Um, but anyway, this is actually live in, in, in some of these EMRs. Now, and uh, I guess the last thing I'll talk about is closing the loop. So think about a, a watering system where the water goes on the same time every day, regardless if the lawn is raining, whether it's raining or the lawn is flooded. So you need some, just like a thermostat, when the temperature gets too hot, it turns off the heat. And what diagnosis is an open loop system. We don't get that feedback. Um, I, I think one of the cases that the most interesting because I was just with this fellow in Chicago. He turned out he was one of my, our fellows. CMV, uh, disseminated CMV, the person was in the hospital for three months. And so we went back to 32 and they had an autopsy. We didn't know, they didn't know what the diagnosis was until the autopsy. And we went back and, you know, we can't blame people for missing this diagnosis necessarily. We went to 32 people who care for this person, not like somebody who did Tylenol once in the middle of the night for a fever but they were the resident who took care of that patient for the full month. They were the ID fellow who followed that patient for a full rotation. And we said, how many, how many of you heard that Mr. So-and-so had CM, disseminated CMV? Seven out of 32 had learned that. So all those people, there was no learning involved in caring for that case. In fact, some of them were sure the person had TB, you know, and they never was proved. So they didn't really learn anything from what was going on. So we've done some outreach calls with IVR outreach, a lot of challenges in doing feedback. I'm trying to wrap up quickly because I want to get to some Q&A. So um, in summary, how to improve diagnosis. We want to harness HIT in a good way, especially clinical documentation, test follow-up, working with patients as partners to post-produce diagnosis, obviously patients, parents, um, so we need to be listening, we need to be working together, we need to be admitting our uncertainty and saying, I'm really not sure, let's, let's figure out together, let's watch this patient. Uh, learning from our mistakes, uh, safer mechanisms, more open forum. People didn't even feel immediately comfortable here raising their hand, but hopefully we can make that, uh, that safety of c culture here. And then becoming more skilled in dealing with uncertainty because it's really ubiquitous in terms of how we communicate and work with that. And then there's a role for patients. So, you know, as I said, I was just with the patients this weekend. Nothing about us with without us is for us. So this is sort of a nice place to end, thinking about the patient's importance. So let's do some Q&A. We still have about five or so more minutes. Thanks.